This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, eye-opening study out of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Obesity rates have risen significantly for American women. 40% of American women have been designated as obese. That's a startling number. And according to the study, women have now surpassed men in obesity rates, 40% for women, 35% for men. The JAMA survey also revealed another alarming trend, Margaret. While obesity rates are actually dropping for the nation's preschoolers to under 10%, the nation's teens are seeing an uptick in obesity. In the past 25 years, the number of teens who qualify as obese has gone from 1 in 10 to 1 in 5, and we know that's only setting up these millions of of teens for a whole host of chronic diseases later on. The study goes back to the 1960s. It's called the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. You can access the information by going to their website, cdc.gov nchs. Well, our guest today has crafted a very interesting approach to the obesity problem, Margaret. Dr. Robert Czar is a Washington, D.C.-based pediatrician who launched the ParkRx program, inspiring clinicians to prescribe time in nature for his patients. Hmm. So we're looking forward to that, Mark. And, of course, Lori Robertson will be stopping by, the managing editor of factcheck.org, always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Czar in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's head. Headline news. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. In the wake of the latest mass shooting in Orlando, which left 50 people dead and more than 50 wounded, the Senate took up four measures that would have made gun laws more restrictive. All four measures failed to pass the Republican majority. The Democratic bill would have expanded the use of background checks beyond only federally licensed dealers to include private gun sellers and all sales online. A competing measure from Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa was also rejected. It would have encouraged states to submit relevant mental health records to the nation's background check system. For the coming of the Zika virus, a bit of progress out of the lab. U.S. officials have given the green light for an experimental vaccine for Zika due to begin human testing in coming weeks. Inovio Pharmaceuticals has received clearance from the FDA to begin these early stage safety tests of a DNA-based vaccine against the mosquito-borne virus. Zika virus has already affected 60 countries on four continents. Zika has already become epidemic in Latin America and the Caribbean. And on the heels of Philadelphia, passing the nation's first tax on sugary beverages comes some promising overall dietary news. Americans are drinking less soda and sugary drinks. Study done by researchers at Tufts showed Americans are drinking less soda and increasing consumption of whole grains and nuts. While these are marked improvements, study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association showed over the past decade many people still consumed too much sugar and processed food and not enough whole fruits and vegetables. Those consuming a poor diet dropped from 56% down to 46% over a decade, but there were disparities as well. Those who were more affluent and white had much higher consumption of whole fruits and vegetables and less sugar consumed compared to minorities and those living closer to the poverty line. I'm Ariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines.
We're speaking today with Dr. Robert Zarr, board-certified pediatrician at Unity Healthcare in Washington, D.C. He's founder of the D.C. Park Rx program and is Park Rx advisor to the National Park Service, a national community health initiative to prescribe activity in nature for patients to achieve optimal health. Dr. Zarr is the past president of the D.C. chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. He's the assistant clinical professor at the Children's National Medical Center in George Washington University. Dr. Zarr earned his medical degree at Baylor College of Medicine, his master's of public health from the University of Texas School of Public Health, and completed his pediatric residency at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. Dr. Zarr, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you, Mark and Margaret. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, and uh, you know, you're a pediatrician serving a patient population, one of the toughest uh, regions in the country, and you've seen firsthand the effects of poverty and the health of children and the worrisome growth of chronic illness in America. And I'm wondering if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about their growing chronic disease burden and why this trend is so alarming. Certainly when I was in training, there was little to no mention of the burden of chronic disease in children. I think it was already well established in the adult population. Um, But what we've seen in the last 20 years has been a dramatic increase in chronic disease in children as well. These are things like high blood pressure and diabetes, pre-diabetes. Being overweight or obese, which is an independent risk factor to develop other kinds of chronic disease, um, as well as mental health, serious mental health illnesses, things like um, depression and anxiety, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in both children and adults. Um, So there's this sort of large basket of illness and is ultimately causing premature death. And on top of all of that, we're also spending um, 86 cents on the dollar managing chronic disease. These are healthcare dollars that we're spending on actual care. So that's quite fatiguing actually for um, providers of healthcare to sort of have to process this every day when patients and families come in with really burdensome issues that, you know, I think can be somewhat addressed with a, a different perspective, and that is really thinking about this from a a wellness perspective and a prevention perspective. Well, doctors are, let's talk about the logistics of launching a program like Prescription for Parks or Park Rx. You realized that there were hundreds of parks in Washington, D.C., in the surrounding area, and you figured out a way to map them out so that your patients could easily access a park that was most suitable for their needs and their location. Tell us about how you partnered with the local park service to actually create this service So, you know, this idea of prescribing a park actually resonates quite easily with providers of health care, with the public at large, and with the land and and, and water management agencies, um, because it just makes sense. So when I started this project um, almost six years ago, I was thinking it might be relatively easy for me just to go to a website and find all of the parks, all the green space. And in fact, it it really wasn't that simple. And so I had to work with your local Department of Park and Rec, Department of Health, as well as some regional and national organizations who've really helped along the way, from the National Park Service to the National Rec and Park Association. So obviously that was a a, a no-brainer for me, is to reach out to those local agencies. And and in my case in D.C., and what I found out was is that the Park Service was a little bit ahead of the medical and public health community with respect to prescribing parks because they have already a program called Healthy Parks, Healthy People, um, within which park prescription or Park Rx falls. 
and they were actually very excited that here was a doctor and now there's many of us actually around the country who are reaching out to them and working with them and partnering with them to figure out ways in which we can take all of this data and put it into a format that is easy to use and explain it to the medical and public health communities that's easy for them to understand and relevant to their work and incorporate that into the daily routines of what doctors, nurses, um, social workers, therapists do anyway, every day. So we really think of this as, as a tool that we can use every day, especially when we're seeing patients who are suffering from chronic disease, even somebody who's not, who just needs to be outside more. And we've placed that inside of our electronic health record. And you know, right now we're in the midst of, of developing a national database. So, you know, within a few years, I can imagine um, taking a tool that we've developed here in D.C. and, you know, modeling a national park database after what we've done here and, and making it available to everybody. We're speaking today with Dr. Robert Zarr, board-certified pediatrician at Unity Healthcare in Washington, D.C. He's founder of the D.C. Park Rx and the Nationwide Park Rx program in partnership with the National Park Service. You know, Dr. Zarr, I was thinking as you were talking about making relevant to providers uh, the work that you're doing, that you're bound to find folks who wanted to talk about the, the science that supports the work you're doing. And there is so much empirical evidence about the powerful impact of health and just being in nature. And it's been said that if this came into a bottle, it, it probably would be considered a miracle drug. So could you share with, with the listeners some of the empirical data that you have? What are the proven health benefits? So there is a significant body of scientific literature now that's looking at a wide variety of health benefits. You know, it ranges from physical health, mental health. We know from a number of studies that um, your overall mortality even goes down um, if you just live closer to a green space. Uh, the presumption is, is that the closer you live to a green space, the more likely you are to use it. We have groups of Japanese who are being taken in buses going um, into the forest and having these, these forest bathing trips, they call them. Mm. And they've measured cortisol levels, and they've uh, actually monitored those and found they actually go down when people spend time uh, in a forested area walking. We also know that blood pressure can be decreased by spending time in, in outdoor, green outdoor settings. You know, we know that noise, different kinds of noise affect you. And interestingly enough, you know, we know that now from some scientific studies that, you know, the noise of an urban scape, just the traffic in general, um, actually makes us anxious. We know that both uh, anecdotally and, and with data now. Um, but the obverse is true um, for somebody who's walking in a green setting where you may hear the rustling of the leaves, you may hear the sound of the birds. And those kinds of noise actually have a calming effect, and not just a calming effect, but actually restore our attention. So it's really important for us to be able to, to restore that ability for us to pay attention and to listen. We also have some studies that have looked even at um, you know, type 2 diabetes, and we know that living near um, a green space and having the time to spend in parks um, lowers your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. I think it's pretty clear that to most of us um, that we just feel better. Mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. and that's enough for me, and that's enough for my patients, just to know that you know, they can actually bring some more happiness into their life, um, which is significant and which actually is relevant and does matter. 
Well, Dr. Zarr, as, as frontline clinicians, there's always the challenge with preventive services of time and also the, the science and the art of motivating people to undertake behavioral change, even if it's a very positive change. Tell us uh, how you've been able to encourage your patients to be willing to fill those prescriptions uh, for outdoor time. And what's your experience been of encouraging providers to adopt this as an approach that has real benefits for their patients, but to fit it into those clinical encounters where they are so pressed for time? It's a great question, Margaret. And, you know, it's one that I get asked often. Do my patients and, you know, my colleagues, do they roll their eyes, you know, when we, when we suggest they, um, you know, spend a little bit more time outside uh, when we actually write a prescription for them to play in a park um, or be in a park? Um, and, you know, the quick answer is uh, no. I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the trusting relationship between healers and patients. I think that that is essentially what this boils down to is, you know, do you trust your your social worker, your therapist, your doctor to give you advice like this? And through that trusting relationship, which is a very ancient one, therein lies the opportunities to um, to listen, to know your patient, to make some quick decisions while you're there in the office um, as to whether it's even appropriate to make a recommendation for them in terms of their readiness, their mental readiness to even think about this. So sometimes it just might involve a quick conversation about, you know, how they spend their day. You know, what's their routine like? And if you're seeing somebody for chronic disease issues, you're seeing them pretty frequently anyway. You're seeing them between every one and three months. So there's plenty of opportunities to to bring this up. But asking your patient, you know, what their routine is like and then listening to them. And often that alone is part of the therapy. And you can learn so much about, you know, how they spend their day. And they, in turn, also learn how they spend their day because they're actually verbalized. And it's in that moment, oftentimes, you know, I'll say, well, what do you think about that? You know, do you, do you think that you need to, to tweak your schedule just a little bit? You know, let's talk about, you know, times or places, opportunities during your day that we might be able to get you outside if you're ready for that kind of advice. Then there's the, the, the art of medicine in terms of, you know, figuring out what that advice will really end up being. Um, and I'll, leave, I'll just ask them very, you know, open-ended questions. And as we move along, they'll become more specific. And I'll ask them, you know, what are you ready to commit to right now? And I can help you find ways to do it. I can help you find places to do it. Um, I can, you know, write this down for you. I can sort of a contract, so to speak, um, between my patient and me or my family and me. And that allows us sort of a launching point. And then they come back and we talk about this. So, you know, it, it's really no different than, than anything else we do in, in, in medicine and public health. Regardless of, of what the issue is, um, I think it's that trusting relationship that, that takes us far in terms of changing the way in which we provide health and the way in which we help ourselves. Huh. It's a simple message with profound impact. And, and thinking about profound things, uh, sort of Washington, D.C., not only our nation's capital, but you've got two great leaders, you with the Park Rx program and our first lady, Michelle Obama, who came out with her Let's Move program, Championing Better Diet and Exercise. You know, at the same time, we're seeing this sort of explosion in the fitness wearable industry, certainly focused in on all of us, but the younger generation seems to have more uptake with this. Insurance companies are coming by and providing some incentives. And I'm just wondering, how do you see technologies morphing over to the work that you're doing with the national programs, sort of aimed at the same goal of getting people to be engaged in more physical activity 
and uh, as you describe it, getting more vitamin N. Talk to us a little bit about where you see this evolving. So Richard Louv, I'm glad you alluded to vitamin N, uh, Richard Louv's new book. He was, um, author, he's author of uh, Last Child in the Woods, which actually was a great inspiration for me to do something about this. You know, this question of, of exercise is a very important one in technology. Um, you know, Richard Louv is, has said before that, you know, and I, I think he's, he's, it's a really good sort of framework um, to put this into, which is that, you know, the, the more technology we have in our life, the more nature we need to balance it out. Um, and that, I think, is a good way to think about technology because, you know, technology isn't bad, and it's, it's not necessarily a, always a balancing game, although it is, you know, we, I just put it that way to you, that, you know, the more of one, the more of the other you need. But I think there's other ways to think about the, the role of technology. And I've actually really embraced technology with this. I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, helping to create, you know, park databases around the country and linking them to electronic health records so that we can use this tool real time with our patients and prescribe parks. Um, but how do we get our hands around, our minds and hands around technology so that it, it doesn't run our schedule? You know, a word that I often use is, is judicious. There's a judicious amount of of technology that is sort of the right amount, the right dose of technology, and also how you use it. So, you know, there's no going back. I mean, we've got our younger population is, you know, much more facile with, with mobile devices and all of the, you know, technological advances than, than probably um, we are on this call. And, and I, I think we need to embrace that. I mean, that's sort of their world. I mean, they have been born into a world of vast amount of technology. And um, that's one of the things that we're trying to do here in D.C. is, in fact, create this access to the green world um, through mobile devices. So we're actually developing an app where not only can we do this in the office and on a website, and, and even already now we can, we can find parks you know, on, on mobile devices through mobile-friendly websites, but to really make it much more you know, user-friendly for everyone. And even tying that back into your health providers, too. So you know, why is it that it's somewhat complicated now to get a message back to your health provider? Um, we have these things called patient portals now, and, and, and many patients know what I'm talking about. And it's a way for patients to communicate with their health providers you know, in that interim period between one visit and the next. And I think that there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to do that as well with a park prescription. You know, I would like to know, you know, what the experience was like for my patients after I prescribed a particular park and after they agreed to go there several times a week and, and do some set activity. So I should be able to know what's going on if they want to tell me in that interim. And so to help tweak that, that experience to make sure it's really optimal for them during the time that I'm not seeing them. So I think there's there's many ways to think about technology and and how we can use it to our good and not to our detriment. But I think I think still the the advice is is sage advice from mm-hmm. from Richard Louv that that we do need to be aware of how much time it, you know at the end of the day it definitely it definitely is important to to be aware of how much time we're spending in front of a screen and how little time we're spending out in nature. So it's Great. it's actually not an easy one to answer but it's one I think we all have to grapple with. We've been speaking today with Dr. Robert Zarr, pediatrician at Unity Healthcare, a community health center in Washington, D.C., and the founder of D.C. Park Rx and the Nationwide Park Rx program in partnership with the National Park Service. You can learn more about his work by going to dcparksrx.org or parkrx.org and follow him on Twitter at DocZarr. Dr. Zarr, thank you so much for the work that you do and for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you, Margaret and, and Mark. 
At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Donald Trump said, hairsprays not like it used to be because chemicals in it that affect the ozone layer have been banned. Many countries began phasing out the ozone-depleting substances in hairspray in the late 1980s, but these regulations wouldn't affect the quality of hairspray. Trump also said using hairspray in his apartment, which he said was all sealed, would prevent any ozone-depleting substances from escaping into the environment. But these chemicals would still make their way out, experts told us. Trump has been making false claims about hairspray in the ozone layer for at least five years and most recently made these statements at a rally in West Virginia. Hairspray is made up of chemicals that make hair stiff and a propellant. Before the signing of the Montreal Protocol in 1987, hairspray and other aerosols used chlorofluorocarbons as propellants. CFCs are potent ozone-depleting substances. A weakened ozone layer leads to an increase in ultraviolet radiation, which then brings about higher rates of skin cancer, cataracts, and immune system problems in human populations. The gravity of the issue prompted countries to phase out CFCs. Hairspray now uses HFCs, or hydrofluorocarbons, and the ozone layer is recovering. But these regulations have nothing to do with the stiffening agent in the spray, only the propellant that propels the stiffening agent out of the can. As for Trump's sealed apartment, we interviewed both a chemist and a physicist with the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. They told us it makes no difference if you spray chemicals inside or outside. They will eventually make it outside, moving through the lower atmosphere over months before being transported up to the stratosphere. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Food labeling could be going one step further than simple calorie counts in the future. Public health researchers at the University of North Carolina have some pep in their step for another approach to getting consumers' attention when pondering those food and beverage choices. There's growing interest in a new approach to displaying calorie counts next to menu items. Show the amount of exercise that would be required to burn off those calories consumed from drinking, say, a 20-ounce cola. They developed an icon symbolizing a person walking and how far that person would have to walk to erase the calories they were just about to consume. They conducted a random my study to determine what, if any, effect the measure would have on consumer choices. And so one group was randomized to no information except the food items. Another one was a menu of pretty much every item, exact same way, and it had the calories. And then a third option had calories plus minutes to walk with our little figure, and it had, you know, for example, 91 minutes. And then a, finally, a fourth menu that showed the same exact thing with the same exact figure 
with miles to walk. So it might say 5.1 miles. Dr. Anthony Vieira, professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Public Health, he said the study showed quite clearly that when consumers saw that consuming a food or drink item would require them to walk five miles to burn those calories off, as opposed to just seeing the calories, it had a direct impact on the choice. When you were shown no label, the average calories ordered were 1,020. When you were shown calories only, which is a you know sort of the policy, the current policy, the average order was 927 calories, and when shown calories plus miles, the average order was 826 calories. So as you can see, there was a definite decrease in calories when you're shown calories plus miles. They are now scaling up their research to test it in restaurants. Restaurant food labeling, showing a consumer how much exercise will be required to burn off the calories consumed helping them comprehend the actual calorie value of the foods they choose, and maybe thus positively impacting their intention to consume fewer calories more wisely? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare, broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.